Welcome to this episode of Conversations That Matter, a production of St. John's Lutheran Church in Salisbury, North Carolina. I am Taylor Hutchins, and this episode is part two of a conversation with Pastor James Dimmel, Pastor Munther Isaac, and Dr. Michael Connor that talks about an open letter from Palestinian Christians to Western church leaders and theologians. Thanks for joining us. What strikes me, uh, Pastor Munther and Michael, is this sort of appeal to just war theory. Now, if you haven't heard that language formally, it's a well-established theological doctrine. It has a long history dating back uh, to the medieval time period. And um, just Google just war theory and, and do a quick internet search, and you'll see that there are several a tenets of what makes a war just in the Christian theological uh, heritage, but one of those one of those tenets um, is just means, right? Um, can a war um, or is a war, if it is to be just, can it be fought with just means? To, to fight a to just war, you have to have just means, and the images that we are seeing that are coming out of Gaza, um, the bombing of hospitals. Uh, the fact that 5,000 children, um, as Pastor Monther has just told us, have been killed. The fact that um, in the in the imagination of Palestinians, what, the images that they're confronted with are those of body parts um, and unmarked graves and, and all of these things makes me question and wonder, um, how can this be a just war with means of war that seem to be so indiscriminate? that seem to be so egregiously um, violent um, and that seem to just um, blanket the whole area, um, irregardless of who might be innocent or guilty of uh, October 7th or not. And so, yeah. No, you, you're right. But uh, even then, it's that uh, assuming that the just war is theory is actually valid. And then what you're doing is saying, let's assume it's valid, dig into it and see, is this really what's happening? And, and you're saying, no, they're not even following what the just war theory should say. I would even question the theory itself. Correct, yes. Uh, especially that where it came from and who's using it. Uh, and it seems to me that the just war theory is something that... Um, Empires in the West, and I'm using that term broadly, um, especially with the Christian tradition, something they developed to justify why they are killing and invading other places. Uh, because they know deep that, you know, Jesus didn't tell us to kill. Uh, yet somehow, you know, we created this matrix of sets and conditions uh, technicalities even uh, to justify acts of violence as Christians who follow Jesus who was clearly about loving the enemy 
who was clearly about seeing God's image in everyone. Uh, uh, and, and so, you know, I, I would question the theory itself, giving where it came from. And uh, these days, a lot of discussion is happening between, you know, a lot of my friends were talking and, and, and thinking, how different is the theology that comes from context of empire? And again, I'm using this term widely in a very general way because empire still exists today, uh, as opposed to theology that's coming from context of marginalization and oppression. I would argue that the Bible was written in such a context, uh, marginalization and oppression. We're close to celebrating Christmas, this is Advent. And the Christmas narrative began with a call for a census, which is uh, a basic tenant of empires for taxation and domination. This is the context. This is the backdrop of the Christmas story. Uh, this is where Jesus' family, the Holy Family, were you know had to move from Nazareth to Bethlehem as a result of uh, an imperial decree. For a census, you know, we compare this today with the system of permits and magnetic cards and so on. It's also a, a, a mean of control. Uh, the good news, don't be afraid, I bring you good news, take a whole different meaning in such a context. than when uh, you consider them from a place of simply comfort and uh, privilege. So uh, going back to our discussion about the just war theory, you know, uh, you're many times you just have to question the environment in which or the context in which such a theory and other theories uh, came to being, you know, making Jesus's teachings as if they are technical, if you know what I mean. What's not technical to me, Pastor Munther, seems uh, to be this notion of of, of an empire um, and of means and methods of empire. It, I'll direct um, whoever's listening to this back to the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. One of those temptations, to put it in the language we're using right now, was the temptation to empire, right? Uh, call, yes, call up angel armies, right? The whole world can be yours. Jesus was tempted with that. And Jesus rejected, thanks be to God, that temptation in Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching and Jesus' death and resurrection shows us a different way, right? Shows us a different uh, vision of what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven uh, might look like. And it's a kingdom not um, secured and anchored in violence and domination and control. Instead, it's it's an empire that always strives and seeks in nonviolent ways. I'll remind you of the hours that Jesus hung on that cross, uh, but mm. seeks in ways that are peaceable and nonviolent still resistant, but nonviolent, um, after um, a different vision of what our common life together can be and look like that looks back to the honoring of the image of God and each individual, even individuals that don't necessarily agree with everything uh, you might opinion or hope or, or want or, or think. Um, and so for us as Christians, I want to, I want to return us back to this, um, this call to repent um, that is throughout this letter. Um, for us as Christians, 
from my perspective, um, and this is my perspective, is just James, not even necessarily Pastor James. Uh, one of the things I hope to repent for personally is uh, the pull of this uh, one-sided narrative that is so pervasive in, I think, Western media. Um, what are the voices that we are listening to? What are the stories that I am hearing? One of the most powerful things um, for me, we were so fortunate, Pastor Munther and I, um, we were able to lead a trip this past summer um, with 24 of um, 24 young people from our churches, uh, 12 young people from Palestine, 12 young people from um, North Carolina, where we're serving. Um, we we got together for 10 days here in, in the United States and traveled and listened. Um, and this was all before this war in October um, even ever broke out. And so one of the things that gives me such hope, um, and it also gives me pause, is the lament and cry that I see now on Instagram from all of these kids um, that I follow and from all of the kids from our side that went on that trip that are sharing um, these stories that are listening and learning in a new way than might have even been uh, feasible for them before this trip. And, and that brings me back to uh, relationship. Who are we in a relationship to? Who are we listening to? Whose call and voice um, is guiding us? Um, and so for us as Christians, right, as, as siblings in faith, that voice is always going to be first and primarily should be Christ. A Christ who is peaceful, a, a Jesus who is nonviolent, a um, a Jesus that looked empire in the face and said, you know what, maybe it's not so complicated after all, and I can show you a different way. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and to violence, let's remember that Jesus himself was the victim of violence. Um that violence of empire fell on Jesus himself. And uh, and David, Jesus defeated the ultimate enemy, which is death, uh, through the power of love and sacrifice, not the other way around. And and this is what we're called to follow as, uh, as Christians. Um, and thank you for mentioning the experience this summer of the 24 kids, 12 Palestinians, 12 Americans, because I thought what happened then is uh, what in my book, Stepping into the Other Side of the Wall. And I beat that on both sides, you know, uh, crossing and listening and understanding and learning. Uh, and I'm willing to bet that those 12 Americans now are not just listening with new eyes to what's happening, but... Uh, they, I'm sure that, you know, listening and saying with inside of themselves, know that Palestinians are good people because we met them. Mm -hmm. And I cry from the inside because I know many people from Gaza. They're the most wonderful people. I wish people would step into this uh, horrible siege, horrible open, old, open air prison, or as many are calling it, concentration camp that is Gaza, uh, and, meet, uh, and meet the people of Gaza. Uh, you know, the power of social media today. Some of the journalists in Gaza are uh, risking their lives to go to where bombs fall uh, and film how people are being rescued from the rubble. And as I said, it's horrifying. Others are 
in the hospital sharing stories that are just horrifying. But one of the, uh, uh, some journalists have chosen to do something else, and I love this. Uh, they are reporting from the uh, schools and tents where many have sought refuge. And they are interviewing children and showing how even in the worst of conditions, children are praying, singing, uh, playing together, uh, uh, drawing, uh, making jokes, and uh, uh, you know, asking them, what's your dream? And it's the most precious thing uh, those journalists are doing by humanizing the people of Gaza um, for the rest of the world. Because I think this is really important. For I think that before the genocide and the killing and the destruction, something took place that allowed the world to be at peace with that, which is that Gazans were dehumanized. And once we stop believing they are equal, then it becomes perfectly fine to do all these horrible things that we're doing to them right now. And so it's important that uh, we see the image of God in every person. It's important to see Christ in every person. You know, uh, last Sunday, I preached from Matthew 25. And we know this passage. I was, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me water. And in that passage, Jesus said something really, really remarkable. He said, whatever you have done to one of those little ones, I think in English, you have done to me. You have done to me. And I, I said that in a time when the world has dehumanized us, uh, called us all sorts of things just to justify our massacre, our killing. Jesus says that whoever does something good to us, he's doing it to him. Uh, what honor we have to have um, the image of Jesus in us uh, in such uh, a position. Um, and I, and I, I hope the world sees this. I hope the world begins to open to the reality that for too many years, and sadly, theology has been part of it. The Palestinians have been dehumanized, including Palestinian Christians. Uh, and this allowed... This is why it's perfectly fine to go on with this occupation for many years. It's go fine to go on with this discrimination and displacement and, and, and you know, moving Palestinians and then with this killing because, you know, eventually the world will move on. I know we're precious to God, but I hope the world sees us as such. the stark reality of dehumanization is uh, whenever we as individuals allow any other person to be dehumanized, uh, the person who's really dehumanized is not the other, it's ourselves. Because we have failed and uh, neglected them as precious children of God. We have failed to see the face of Jesus and the call of our and the call of our of, of God's Holy Spirit to our neighbors to love and to serve and to care for them. And so um, with that, I do want to talk a little bit about call and response. So this letter has been issued. Um, it has gone out. We do encourage you to read this letter, to really pray through it, um, to really think about what repentance looks like. Um, 
for us as Western Christians. Um, but Pastor Munther, what response um, have you received specifically to this letter since it's been published? Yeah, um, on the page itself where it was published and we've asked people to just sign and say, yes, we, we received this, we support it. Uh, we were surprised to gather more than 7,000 signatures. Um, which tells me that at least 7,000 people read it. <laughs> but that's good. Uh, 17,000, I'm sorry, 17,000 signatures, 470. So 17 people, 1,000 people. I know more have read it. Um, yet, I think we live in such polarized times that people are afraid to voice out their support. And... Um, People on the ground, people in churches get it. And I think our churches right now have become a reflection of societies where there is a gap between what leaders think and say and what people believe. Uh, that's why, for example, in England, uh, you get a, a demonstration uh, uh, in support of justice for Palestine and freedom for Palestine with more than 850 people in it. That's a huge number. And then the British Parliament overwhelmingly voting against a ceasefire. And I think similar in the US today, all um, surveys and public opinion show that most Americans favor a ceasefire, yet a lot of church leaders, but mainly Congress and senators uh, are not there yet. Uh, I think the same in the church. Many people in the views get it, but uh, many church leaders are afraid to speak out or to even voice sympathy for uh, for the Palestinians. Uh, we've received a lot of endorsements, a lot of calls, a lot of circulation. Um, we've received several calls to speak to um, church groups and pastors around the world about it. Um, and interestingly, you know, maybe some of the most, uh, you know, interesting uh, supports we received uh, or good feedback was from Latin America. South Africa and India. And I think they see similar patterns in how they have been ignored. They have seen elements of that theology that uh, was used to justify suffering against us Palestinians. They've seen it in their own context as well. So uh, they moved a lot of, you know, they made a lot of uh, uh, movement in support they lobbied so that we speak in webinars and address church leaders. Uh, we've spoken to around 400 church leaders and theologians in Latin America in one single call. Uh, so some people actually received it, but I still hope that the Western church receives it. And we're still waiting for more voices, strong voices for a ceasefire. Uh, we're calling our partners, our friends, please call for an immediate ceasefire, not a humanitarian four hours or four day ceasefire, which allows people to regroup and then continue uh, the war again. This is not the goal. Uh, Christmas is coming. And, uh, you know, if, if we have one wish, one desire is that this is the last day of war. Every day that we miss, hundreds are killed. Every day we're late in having uh, end of the war and ceasefire means by numbers around 100 to 150 child died uh, or killed. Um, so 
I don't think, you know, we're there yet. We're still speaking. We're still challenging churches to listen uh, and to stop ignoring the plights of Palestinians and those of Palestinian Christians. We're grateful for the many, many voices that support us. Uh, we're grateful for the demonstrations in the streets. I personally have received so many letters of support and prayers. Uh, this is important, uh, but we need more. We need more because obviously if we measure this by our ability to impact a ceasefire, then we're still not there yet. Thankfully, today there is an agreement to have a four-day truce um, pause. Uh, it's better than nothing, but we need a comprehensive ceasefire. So let's continue to pray and work for that as well. It's interesting to note that our global uh, siblings in faith uh, see common patterns um, that you put on display in this letter. Um, but for us Western Christians, it's more of a, a, a polarizing issue. Um, and I think in our Western context, especially in our American context right now, everyone that I just talked to on the street uh, laments the polarization that seems to be so embedded in our society. And certainly this, this Palestinian-Israeli conflict right now is a polarized issue um, in the United States. It's no exception. So, Michael, how, how do you deal with this when, when you talk to others about this ongoing war, this ongoing conflict? Well, it, it can be a challenge. I, I've come to the conclusion that um, conversations that that matter, the theme of this podcast, really uh, happen between people who you have a relationship with, you know and respect. And so in terms of awareness building, I think sticking with personal narrative Um. And if you hear people that you know and respect, love, uh, whatever friendships or relationships you have, if they're if they're saying something that um, is different than your views, you know, ask them genuinely and listen. Uh, you know, how did you develop those thoughts, or w what led you to that 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 perspective? So I have some friends that I've known for my entire life, just about, uh, who uh, have a faith, but differ from me in, in, in a lot of, uh, let's say, political topics, including this one, uh, especially. Uh, they know me, they love me, they respect me. So they will listen to my personal experiences, not my opinions necessarily, but my personal experiences. So I can relate about uh, the Palestinian Christians I know in uh, the West Bank, uh, and talk to them and they, and they understand, uh, they might come away, uh, not totally aligned with my opinions, but they can't deny my, my testimony. And I think that's the way we all are. Uh, and so back to the awareness building, the relationship that we have with pilgrimage over there this year, the youth exchange, I think we're planting seeds with our, with, uh, all the individuals that were, able to meet and discuss and, and have simple uh, discussion, uh, you know, friendships to build that uh, aspect or have it grow uh, with regard to relationships. Uh, and one other thing I just want to put in here, uh, uh, not necessarily to that question, but 
we've been we rightfully so we've been talking about Gaza and October seventh uh, in um, Israel. Uh, there's a lot going on in the West Bank right now that isn't pretty. Uh, there are deaths. Uh, there are destruction of po- property. There are harassments. There's lockdowns. There's there's a lot of marginalization that uh, some people are aware of, uh, but uh, uh, but uh, it continues. There's there's pain and suffering going on in in the West Bank in addition to Gaza. Yeah, um, absolutely, Michael. Thank you for raising this up. Um, more than 200 Palestinians have been killed, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, since October 7th uh, in the West Bank, some by settler violence, other by uh, the military. This is, you know, this is not the norm in the last five or 10 years. Uh, this is a new number. This is, you know, peak numbers since the second uprising in the 2000, early 2000. Uh, it's becoming very, very dangerous for us to go from one Palestinian town to the other. Um, I haven't left Bethlehem since October 7th, uh, just out of fear uh, of going through the roads that settlers have access to. Um, so it's been really bad in the West Bank. We're not talking about it because, you know, it looks... You know, when when you compare it to the horrors that are happening in Gaza, uh, you say, okay, uh, but it's, you know, people are killed here, especially, you know, most of them are youth and children, uh, 16, 15, 17, and so on. Um, and the other thing is that people are losing hope. People are completely losing hope. Uh, I've never encountered so much despair. Um Keep in mind, we've just recovered from a uh, difficult period during COVID, especially for a town that relies entirely on Jerusalem and tourism. And now we we have none of you know we have no tourism and no access to Jerusalem. Uh, So it's 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 a state of despair right now we're facing in in Bethlehem. so it's definitely difficult. Thank you for raising this up. Um, pray for us as we continue to endure, as we continue to do our best um, to survive. I mean, we we ended the letter, by the way, with a reference to our resilience as Palestinians. Uh, this is something we have to preach to ourselves because it's not something that comes by nature. Something you have to fight for is something you have to remind yourself for. Resilience is not just something you're built into, but it's uh, years of experience, uh, experiencing hardship uh, and difficulty. Uh, but right now, it really looks difficult and dark, uh, to be honest. Pastor Mantra, I wonder, as we as we turn to close here, if, if you might read that excerpt from, from the letter that you're speaking of for us. Yeah, so that was from uh, the conclusion uh, of the letter. Uh, And let me read it. We say it with a broken heart. We hold Western church leaders and theologians who rally behind Israel's war accountable 
for the theological and political complicity in the Israeli crimes against Palestinians, which have been committed over the last 75 years. We call upon them to re-examine their positions and to change their direction, remembering that God will judge the world in justice. We also remind ourselves and our Palestinian people that our sumud, which is steadfastness, is anchored in our justice, in our just cause, in our historical rootedness and this land. As Palestinian Christians, we also continue to find our courage and consolation in the God who dwells with those of a contrite and humble spirit. We find courage in the solidarity we receive from the crucified Christ, and we find hope in the empty tomb. We are also encouraged and empowered by the costly solidarity and support of many churches and grassroots faith movements around the world, challenging the dominance of ideologies of power and supremacy. We refuse to give in, even when our siblings abandon us. We are steadfast in our hope, resilient in our witness, and continue to be committed to the gospel of faith, hope, and love in the face of tyranny and darkness. In the absence of all hope, we cry out our cry of hope. We believe in God, good and just. We believe that God's goodness will finally triumph over the evil of hate and of death that still persists in our land. We will see here a new land and a new human being, capable of rising up in the spirit to love each one of his or her brothers and sisters. Amen. Amen. Your kingdom come. Thank you for reading that, Pastor Munther, and thank you for um, the time that you have given up to us to have this conversation um, today. Um, to our listeners, um, we hope that that you listen and that you reflect and that you pray um, on this issue, um, that you open yourselves um, to repentance, as this letter speaks of. And if you would like um, to read this letter to the people at St. John's who are listening to this, this letter will be posted on our website. Um, but you can also find this letter on change.org. And I'll, I'll again remind you that this letter is called I Call for Repentance, an open letter from Palestinian Christians to Western church leaders and theologians. Um, if you just Google the words an open letter from Palestinian Christians, it'll be one of the first things that pops up on your search feed. And so again, Michael, thank you for your time today. Pastor Munther, thank you for your time today. Um, thank you to our listeners for your time um, and considering this conversation that matters um, and how God is calling each of us uh, to get involved.